going. All right. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Om Philosophers Liv och Tankar, a pod where we discuss philosophy with current philosophers. I'm Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University, and by my side, as per usual, is... Martin Jansson, associate professor in theoretical philosophy at Lund University. And today uh, we have as a special guest Christian List, uh, who's professor of philosophy and political science at London School of Economics. Welcome, Christian. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for having me on your program. It's a pleasure. Um, okay, so let's start out by asking. Uh, the topic of this this uh, this episode is free will, which you've written a book about. So I'm going to start out by asking. Um, I think most of us have some sort of common sense opinion about free will. I am free to choose A over B. I can choose at what time I go out of bed in the morning, for instance. In other words, I experience my will to be free. Uh, but I guess it's more complicated than that in a philosophical sense. So why is there a need in a philosophical sense to to clarify why free will is real? Yes, um, so we all have this uh, very powerful intuition that uh, our choices are free. So this morning, for instance, I had a choice between tea and coffee for breakfast. And uh, as it happens, I had a coffee rather than a tea. But um, I certainly feel that I could have chosen otherwise. Um, and you know, even more so when we make important choices, we think there are different options ahead of us between which we can choose. Um, um, but now... Um, In uh, recent years, uh, this idea of free will has really come under attack, um, especially in um, uh, some um, circles within neuroscience, but also uh, in a lot of popular science writing. So if you browse um, the popular science section of a large bookshop, you're likely to come across uh, a bunch of books arguing that free will is an illusion. And I mean, there are a number of different um, ways in which people um, make this uh, claim. They suggest, for instance, that um, neuroscience shows uh, that uh, we are really just um, biophysical machines and it is subconscious brain processes that are responsible for the actions that we uh, take uh, rather than our conscious intentional choices and uh, therefore um, the claim is uh, free will is an illusion. Isn't that sufficient to have just the illusion of free will? Um, Well, uh, so free will is a very central notion, not just for our common sense understanding of um, uh, human life, um, but uh, it also plays a very important role in um, society's practices of uh, signing responsibility um, for our actions. Um, So how could we hold someone responsible for what they do um, if uh, they didn't uh, you know, make that choice uh, out of their own uh, free will. And so I think if we really were to um, uh, come to the conclusion that uh, free will is an illusion, uh, that would um, put a lot of pressure on not just our understanding of the human condition, but also on our practices of, of assigning responsibility. Um, so, so in your book, how do you defend the claim then that free will is real in sort of opposition to the, what we know about neuroscience and, and so on? Y- yes. So um, I think the, the first starting point is, of course, a clarification of what we mean by free will. And so I think um, um, 
free will requires uh, three things, at least free will on a sufficiently robust understanding requires three things. First of all, it requires intentional agency. So only the kinds of entities who are goal-directed intentional agents are even candidates for um, uh, having free will. I've got a water bottle in front of me. Um, now, that's certainly not an intentional goal-directed agent, and um, you know we would not even... Uh, you know, begin to think about um, ascribing free will to it. So intentional agency is one condition for free will. Secondly, free will requires alternative possibilities um, uh, among which we can uh, choose. So this is uh, the idea that um, um, my choice is only free uh, if I could also have chosen otherwise, uh, if I was just going to do, you know, one thing um, for certain, and there was never any fork in the road ahead of me, uh, that would not be good enough for free will. So that's the idea of alternative possibilities. And then finally, um, uh, free will requires uh, that um, we as agents have causal control over our actions. So unless um, uh, the action is under my intentional causal control, um, I cannot be said to have performed that, that action freely. So, I mean, for instance, uh, if the neuroscientific skeptics uh, are right, then each time I do something, it's my brain that makes me do it. And in, in this case, of course, I would lack um, control. So these are the three requirements, you know, agency, choice between alternative possibilities, and causal control over your actions. And um, now, if you look at um, not just the um, neuroscientific or popular science criticism uh, that, that I mentioned at the beginning, but also if you look at the philosophical literature on free will, you actually find um, uh, objections uh, to um, all three of these conditions. So there are arguments uh, to the uh, effect that intentional agency is an illusion, like a leftover from an old-fashioned folk psychological way of thinking b before we had a proper neuroscientific understanding of you know, how the human organism works. Then there are all these famous arguments um, to the effect that um, if the universe is deterministic, like a mechanical clockwork, uh, where the initial state of the universe uh, predetermines everything that happens uh, thereafter, then uh, that would rule out alternative possibilities uh, among which we could choose. And then finally, um, uh, there are uh, arguments not just coming from neuroscience, but also some arguments from the philosophy of mind uh, that put pressure on the idea uh, of mental causation, the idea that um, conscious, intentional mental states could ever be causes of, of our actions. And so what one needs to do in order to defend free will, to uh, you know, finally come back to your question, is um, show uh, that um, we genuinely have these three capacities, intentional agency, the capacity to, to choose between alternative um, possibilities, and, and causal control. So that's that's sort of the target. Um, I see. I see. Uh, so just concerning the, the the last condition, the causal control, how do you argue in your book then for that, that we have sort of genuine causal control over our actions? Right. Um, so how how can we establish that that we have causal control over our actions? Um, well, 
the first thing um, to note here is that uh, some of the neuroscientific um, skepticism about um, mental causation or causal control um, you know, cite some elaborate experiments, uh, typically experiments which um, show that um, there appears to be uh, some pattern of brain activity be before um, subjects in the experiments become consciously um, aware of uh, their intentions to perform a certain action. And w there are these elaborate experiments uh, of um, brain activity that is associated with voluntary action, typically voluntary motor action. And that uh, then very often gets interpreted as allegedly showing um, that um, agents have no causal control over what they do. But the first thing to note here is um, these studies seldom define precisely what they mean by causation. I mean, they run with some pre-theoretic understanding of uh, causation, and they identify certain associations between some patterns of brain activity and um, you know, some observed actions, and they look at the timing of the brain activity in relation to the timing of um, uh, the subject's uh, remembered uh, uh, conscious intention. Um, but um, what they don't do is begin with a clearly defined notion of causation and then ask, um, under a clearly defined notion of causation, what is the best causal model to explain human action? And my um, strategy for defending um, causal control over our actions uh, is actually a strategy that um, uh, I originally developed and defended in joint work with um, Peter Menzies um, in our work on, on mental causation. And we suggest that if you look at all of the um, special sciences, um, the um, way in which causation is uh, usually defined is um, um, the difference-making understanding of causation. So causes, roughly speaking, are systematic uh, difference-making factors for their effects, which remain in place even if we uh, you know, carefully control either experimentally or statistically for various uh, confounders. So to identify causes of certain effects, we need to look for um, the most systematic difference-making factors um, in relation to those um, effects. And um, you know, once we adopt such a difference-making understanding of causation, we need to ask um, if we want to give a causal, if we want to come up with a causal model to explain human action, um, what are the difference-making factors of human actions? Are they to be identified always at the level of um, neural activity in the brain? Or are they, uh, at least often in many typical cases, to be found at the level of um, intentional mental states? Um, and um, it can be argued that by, by far the explanatorily most useful causal models uh, are often ones that treat the intentional mental states as the difference-making causes of the actions rather than the underlying neural state. Let me just make this concrete. So we agreed to meet at a particular time 
uh, this this morning, and indeed um, I showed up almost on time, <laughs> so I was characteristically a few minutes uh, late. Um, uh, but um, obviously, if we had uh, agreed to meet, um, you know, an hour later, I would have indeed uh, shown up an hour later. We can, um, you know, quite systematically explain and predict this on the basis of my. Uh, mental state and the mental state in turn came about through an act of communication between uh, between us. Um, so it's fair to say here that let's say Christian's desire to show up at uh, time T, um, uh, you know, together with a bunch of other background mental states, uh, caused Christian to show up uh, at at that time. If uh, the desire had been a somewhat different one, namely to show up an hour later or to show, not show up at all, the resulting action would have been different. Um, on the other hand, even if some other background circumstances had been a little bit different, um, uh, I would have still shown up at this, at, at this time. So um, my intentional mental state uh, is a fairly systematic difference-making cause of my action. If you were to look at the precise detailed pattern of brain activity instantiating that mental state on this occasion this morning, you, you might have identified some kind of physically sufficient condition for the you know, train of events that, that subsequently happened. But you, will not, you would not have identified a difference-making cause because the, the details of the brain state you know, could have been ever so subtly different. And still, the overall macro pattern of behavior to be explained uh, would have would have materialized um, anyway. So the bottom line is, once once we are sufficiently careful in defining causation, and we define causation as as difference making, then um, the um, uh, it it turns out that the the causes of human actions in many typical cases. Uh, um, are to be identified at the intentional mental level and not the physical neural level. Mm -hmm. So that, roughly speaking, uh, is uh, my strategy um, for defending the idea that we have causal control over our actions. So it's actually a, a positive defense of there being causal control, not only a sort of a negative defense saying that it hasn't been undermined by these studies. It's, it's actually a positive Yes. Yeah. So there is. Pl I mean, there, there are plenty of um, discussions in the literature uh, that address um, the methodology and interpretation of these neuroscience uh, studies. Um, I think the experiments themselves and and the exper raw experimental data is hard to con contest, and these experiments have been replicated many times. But there is much debate on how exactly to interpret them, and many other. Um, uh, colleagues uh, in the philosophical free will debate uh, have uh, rightly asked critical questions about the interpretation of those experiments. And so there is already a lot of work out there challenging the, the standard free will skeptical interpretation that, that is often uh, given. So my, my emphasis, although I, in, in my book I have a brief discussion uh, of um, uh, the uh, the, the neuroskeptical arguments uh, as as well. Um, my my main line of uh, argumentation is is really a positive one. <clears throat> but but if free will is real, does, does that mean determinism is not real? <clears throat> yeah, that's an excellent uh, uh, question. So um, by 
by far the most um, a widely discussed challenge for free will is the challenge from determinism. So suppose the world uh, is a deterministic uh, system, the, the clockwork universe, as it is sometimes said, then that would mean uh, that the um, completely specified physical state of the world, um, let's say at some time in the remote past, maybe at the time of the Big Bang, would have been sufficient to um, uh, fix or predetermine all subsequent uh, physical events under the laws of nature. That's the thesis of determinism. Now, the thesis of determinism um, is uh, you know, not yet um, completely established because there are some physical theories that give us a deterministic picture of the world, especially some of the classical physical mm. theories. There are some other physical theories such as quantum mechanics that are consistent with an indeterministic picture of the world, though they don't necessarily mandate an indeterministic picture because there are competing uh, interpretations mm -hmm. of, of quantum mechanics and there's no consensus on which interpretation is, is best. So from a purely scientific perspective, um, the question of whether the, um, the physical universe at some fundamental level is deterministic or not is, is still um, an, an open uh, scientific question. So that could go one way or another. Um, at first sight, uh, as I already mentioned, this um, uh, idea of a deterministic universe uh, would seem to undermine uh, free will insofar as it would uh, seem to take away the possibility of choice between uh, different um, courses of action. Um, however, my um, way to defend um, uh, free will and alternative possibility here relies on a distinction between two different notions of determinism. Determinism at the physical level on the one hand and determinism at the agential uh, level, the level of agency on the other hand. Um, at first sight, you might think that uh, if the world is deterministic at a physical level, then uh, that kind of trivially implies that the world is also going to be deterministic at the level of agency. But on closer inspection, surprisingly, that is not the case. Um, the notion of determinism or the distinction between determinism and indeterminism um, is best understood as a distinction that can't be drawn once and for all. So we can't really ask, is the world deterministic or indeterministic simpliciter? But rather, we must specify um, the level of description relative to which we are asking this question. So for any system, um, once you tell me which level of description uh, you are looking at, uh, it becomes an entirely meaningful question whether that system behaves deterministically or indeterministically. Um, but uh, it is entirely possible for a system to behave deterministically at some level, for instance, at a micro level, and to behave indeterministically at another level, um, a, a macro level. Um, in, in fact, um, scientists are familiar with this phenomenon in some areas of physics, so you can have um, deterministic systems in um, classical mechanics, and you can have systems that, um, at least for all practical purposes, behave indeterministically in statistical mechanics. There are many debates about whether we should 
interpret this phenomenon of apparent higher level indeterminism merely as an epistemic phenomenon, as something that stems from incomplete information, ignorance about the system's microstate, or whether we should adopt an, an ontic interpretation, so interpreting it as, as a real phenomenon. And, um, and uh, I think there are some very good arguments for adopting an ontic interpretation here and treating higher-level indeterminism uh, as a real phenomenon um, if it is supported by our best theories, scientific theories of the, of the relevant domain. And my, my argument is that our best theories of human agency <coughs> display um, or represent um, uh, human beings not as mechanical deterministic systems or clockwork devices, but uh, represent human beings actually as uh, indeterministic uh, systems. And f for this uh, reason, I am, um, first of all, in, in entirely um, persuaded that uh, the um, idea of uh, agential level indeterminism is is supported by the human and, and social sciences and uh, also the point that I made about uh, the uh, level relativity of the determinism-indeterminism <coughs> distinction means that indeterminism at the level of agency is compatible with determinism at the level of um, physics. And so that's the reason why I think uh, that um, even if um, fundamental physics were deterministic, which as I said is an open question, um, the idea of uh, agency involving choices between alternative possibilities would still be defensible. I see. But how would that work in a sort of a concrete case? Because many think that, for instance, that uh, intentions we have <coughs> and uh, beliefs, desires just correspond to certain brain states. So if we take the breakfast example again, so say that you are physically uh, um, physically, determinism is true, but at the level of intentions, it is not deterministic. What would that claim amount to in that example? So the claim um, uh, is is the following: um, a so so generally, a system is indeterministic at a at a particular level of description if the complete state of the system described as completely and fully as you can at that level of description um, leaves open or underdetermines or doesn't fix um, the subsequent trajectory of, of states. And so um, in answer to your question, um, indeterminism at the level of agency would mean that um, if I walk into the breakfast uh, room and um, you know you as a scientist or psychologist um, or philosopher study um, you know my agential state my state as an agent then um, even my fully specified uh, agential state uh, which would include my beliefs and desires and various psychological uh, dispositions, cognitive processes, and so on, does uh, does not uh, strictly um, fix the subsequent um, f 
future trajectory. So it does not strictly fix that it has to be the coffee trajectory rather than the tea trajectory. There's an important clarification that I need to make there. So accepting that um, my... Uh, agential state at the time I enter the breakfast room doesn't predetermine the coffee choice rather than the tea choice. Doesn't mean that my choice is random, um, nor does it mean um, that my choice um, isn't uh, in some ways um, influenced or affected by, for instance, my preferences and tastes and, and so on. So in, in fact, uh, as it happened this morning, I uh, you know really did have quite a strong desire to have coffee. So my desire or preference state you know really very much supported um, the, the, the coffee. So that means by the lights of my own uh, psychological state, I would have acted uh, somewhat irrationally had I chosen the tea instead, in spite of the availability of the coffee that, that I preferred. But the fact that I choose the thing that um, uh, you know, on reflection is rational relative to my beliefs and desires does not mean that the alternative choice would have been impossible. The alternative choice would have been perhaps irrational, but not uh, impossible. And so we must not conflate um, you know, irrational choice with impossible choice. I mean, even if I was the sort of impeccably rational agent, which I'm, I'm sure I'm not, but the impeccably rational agent um, who uh, always after careful deliberation identifies precisely one course of action as the uniquely rational one and then very, very reliably pursues it, that does not turn me into some kind of deterministic, mechanistic automaton, because even that hypothetical, impeccably rational agent still faces uh, choice uh, points um, at which different trajectories are possible for that agent, even if they then uh, you know, quite reliably go for one kind of option rather than the other. Uh, start out talking a bit about the blameworthiness and so forth. So, for instance, say that you're held captured and someone forces you to kill one of your two children, for instance. An awful option, of course. You're free to choose between these two options. Would you be held blameworthy for a situation like that if, if, you, if you kill one of your children, for instance? Well, that's uh, that's of course an awful thought experiment. But uh, I, I, so so the the answer that we give to this question is not really settled by the theory of free will. But uh, the answer to that question um, uh, would depend on our um, background uh, moral theory, um, and I mean different moral theories would uh, give different answers to to this question. But um, but uh, the the theory of free will alone uh, would 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 not by itself say what uh, to answer to this question in the absence of specifying let's say whether your moral theory is a utilitarian theory or a Kantian theory or a virtue ethical theory I mean there is a whole variety of different moral theories that would uh, each um, uh, give a somewhat different analysis of this of this kind of case um, so I I certainly do not um, uh, claim that um, the theory of free will alone 
is sufficient to give us a full theory of responsibility. So I think free will is a necessary condition for fitness to be held responsible. So only the kinds of agents who have free will can also be bearers of responsibility. Um, without free will, the whole notion of responsibility, I, I think, um, would, would not really get off the ground. But um, a variety of other further conditions uh, may need to be satisfied uh, for specific, uh, specific instances of responsibility assignment. All right. Um, thank you so much for joining us. To an uh, interested listener who wants to know more about this question, uh, we refer them to Why Free Will is Real, which is available to, to buy. Uh, and in the library as well. Actually. And in the library as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to Lam Studio and Peter for the possibility to record there. Thank you very much.